What's going on, everybody? This is episode 42 of the Krause House podcast. We have a special guest today. If you're not tired enough of hearing just Commodore and I riff and argue, we brought along someone else to join us. We're with Michael Broughton today. Michael, you want to quickly introduce yourself? Delighted to and delighted to be here and to have a good chat. Actually, when I stand up at conferences, the way I introduce myself is the devil incarnate. And the reason I say that is I've only ever worked in sports, but I've sold cigarettes, alcohol, worked in gambling. I'm often mislabeled as a banker because I've done investment in venture capital and the like all around sports. So when you tick off alcohol, cigarettes, gambling, and finance, most people are like, wow, that other than prostitution and drugs, you've got it covered. <laughs> so uh, it's 21 years in sports. I'm a failed athlete. I've loved it. It's wonderful to wake up and go to work and enjoy the conversations from the get-go because you're talking about something you're truly passionate and interested in. And where I've had fun is seven years around motorsports, primarily Formula One. Three years, I was a headhunter hiring C-suite executives, so chairman, CEOs, CFOs, CMOs to sports organizations, be that the NFL in Europe, NBA Europe, Premier League clubs, horse racing, you name it. I had to figure out what the hell they were talking about and then find their execs for them. And then the last 12 years, I have been looking at and investing both my own money and other people's money into what I consider interesting businesses for where is sport going, where is the industry going, where is the fan and the consumer going. And that is a never-ending task trying to keep up with changing habits and interests and honestly seeing range of startups that come up is just fascinating. Yeah, that's me as quick as I can sum it up. That's amazing. Yeah, we don't have to move on to sports. We can stick with the drugs and alcohol for this podcast if you want. I'm sure that will make for a lot better episode. When I was in Boston, you couldn't drink after two and you certainly couldn't smoke a joint, but all these things are changing. Maybe there's more money to be had there. I don't That's know. true. Let's pivot. That's cool. We actually, so I did want to say, I think I skipped this part. We have a little tradition here on the podcast with whatever episode number we look up famous NBA players that have worn that same jersey. So I thought we could do one for football. I have no idea the names I'm looking at. I won't lie, but we got Sam Greenwood from Leeds United. I don't know if that that rings a bell. Alexander Hack wouldn't be the best name for a basketball player, but I'm sure he was pretty good on Germany. We also have Dor Pierez. So I don't know. 42 might not be an illustrious football number. Yeah, well, traditionally, we only went to number 11. <laughs> okay, um, so these guys so these guys are off the map. These guys will be the reserves to the reserves reserves, <laughs> who maybe got a, a couple of games. Um, I was hoping you were going to come out with, I don't know, is what number is Kevin Durant? Something like that. I was going to go, well, that's a great one to be compared with. Oh, um, yeah. So basketball is a wide range. I see a lot in the 20s and 30s, but... There's guys going up to the 90s. 40s in the NFL, I'm thinking that would be probably linebackers or something like that, which would yeah. fit my personality maybe, less my physique. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, we're super happy to have you. We also have another little tradition that we do for guests particularly, but I don't know if you grew up playing football yourself, but we often ask people who played basketball, what is their pickup comparison to an NBA player? So when you're out playing with your friends, Who's the guy that people would see and like, oh, that reminds me of this player. I don't know if you have the one or maybe one you grew up emulating, but if you had to pick one player, who would that be to describe Michael B? So it'd have to be slow, cumbersome, <laughs> not particularly talented. The player I loved was a guy called Eddie Newton who played for Chelsea, which is the club I grew up supporting. And what he was, was the unsung hero. 
No one really noticed him on the pitch, but he did all the dirty work that needed to get done. And that to me was always, you know, when you look at a basketball team and I love listening to the Bill Simmons podcasts and mm. keeping up to date on what's going on. A good basketball team that's got a real title chance has two all-stars, maybe a third if you've got a really magic team. But what you really need on four and five are the guys who really know their role and the sixth man who really knows their role and how they fit into getting the best out of the All-Stars. And that was always the character that I always, you know, most people go with the striker or the star goalkeeper or something. To me, it was always the guy that just did the dirty work. And for me, that was this guy, Eddie Newton. And he scored a goal in the FA Cup to win us our first FA Cup in 1997 for the first time in 27 years. Not only was my hero, but then he truly did something heroic. You know, happy days. Love it. And if... For your community, they're going to really have to go search on Google to find Eddie Newton. Did some quick Googling now, and it's certainly interesting. I like, I'm not, I'll spare the audience some NBA comparisons, but certainly an interesting one. I love the comparison. I'm recently caught up on the me mechanics, for lack of a better word, of the FA Cup. It's a really cool. In fact, this past year, there was a sin. It's the closest one I've seen. You have some Cinderella stories in there, right? You can have p teams from lower leagues really make a push in the FA Cup. Oh, 100%. Funny enough, on Wednesday night, so just two nights ago, was it Tuesday night, two nights ago, I went to a the fourth round qualifying game to get into the FA Cup by, and these are the teams that are just below the professional league. So the team that I was there supporting is my local team, Hampton and Richmond FC. Friends of mine are trying to buy it, which is just great to then go along and watch. And they played a team in the league above, which competes with Wrexham, which is, of course, now famous because of Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney getting involved. And they had their record crowd for the season and for the first, I think they had 1,200 people. And it was just, what a buzz. And this was the qualifying round to get into the Cup. So the great thing about the FA Cup is any team that exists in England can register to play. And you go through all the qualifying rounds. And then if you make it into the first round, you start playing the professional teams. In the third round, the top level clubs in the Premier League then get in. Um, so you can have some real Cinderella stories of teams that are, have come from literally nowhere, are semi-professional, and they end up playing against the Premier League club. And surprisingly, often do quite well. Like They might not win, but it is literally the grand ball for them. So they pull out everything. So these guys are running themselves to dust to cover back and throw themselves in front of balls. It's wonderful to watch. And to me, it's a bit like watching your, not even your D-League, right? And going up against who would be good this year, the Golden State Warriors, mm. and actually having a real go at it and having a chance of getting through the NBA playoffs. It's that kind of crazy. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of, and one of the reasons why I like it, I'm also a big college basketball fan, and the kind of the March Madness, yeah. how they set it up is the top 32 teams get a bid, but then also... The, if you win your conference, you get a bid. And there's these, you think of like the, the SWAC conference or the Sun Belt, like these tiny conferences that are like barely D1, mm -hmm. they get a chance to play. And every single year, you not just get one upset, you get multiple. And then you got some that go as far as Sweet 16, Elite Eight, like pretty much every year. Yeah. And what's crazy is they're playing teams like Duke, right? And these guys are like seven footers. And then the other side, their center's 6'4", right? It's like, how are these guys even in the game? But to your point, right? Duke's there every year. And this is their Super Bowl. This is their grand ball. It, that's yeah. the purest form of sport. It's just going out there and competing regardless. And let's face it. Who does everybody want to win that game against Duke? Oh, yeah. Right? No, no you know, question. I mean, 
You just sat there going, look, I want it to Dukes. It's unfair because after all their success under Coach K, yeah, there's a lot of people who are sat there going, yeah. And funny you say Duke because Duke's golf coach told me I'd never make it. He was right, but he broke my dreams. <laughs> so when I got to college in the States and I discovered college basketball, I just looked around and said, who hates Duke the most? And everyone looked at me and went, well, that's UNC. I'm like, right, I'm a fan of UNC. So since 97 with the Antoine Jameson team that came through and Vince Carter, I've been a UNC fan purely for the reason because they hated Duke, which feels a little unfair on Duke. But yeah, I mean, look, the great thing about sport, because, and, and I can, I, my wife finds it funny because I can walk into pretty much any part of the world. I just love sport. And I can speak probably reasonably well about each country's local sport and their stars and so on. It's, it, I've been able to turn it into a career, literally. But the passion for the stories that come out of it is what, it, to me, is just so incredible. Whether that is people just falling in love with, during the Winter Olympics, the bobsleigh, or people who will never go into a pool just saying, I have to watch Michael Phelps swim. To then, I think, the ones that really drive the true passion, which is the team sports, and seeing these everybody working together, it drives real community, and it drives real passion. And I always find that from that, the storylines come out, and that's what gets everybody up in the morning. Love it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And even thinking about those Olympic ones of a team sport being the country, right, as participating, I totally agree with that community during those eras and those times is special. I've even seen that in esports, right, where people who wouldn't necessarily would say they would watch esports, but when suddenly players put on their country's shirt, suddenly people are like, whoa, 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 you know, I need them to win, right? Because right. they're, my, they're my country. I need to show interest in that. I'm rooting for something bigger than an esport or a personality. I'm rooting now for, for myself, actually, is what they're rooting for, right? Their sense of identity. So yeah, I think you could go off in a, a whole bunch of tangents off that. But people are always seeking some form of identity. It's how we define ourselves. And I've always said you can travel the world. As, if you can talk about music and sport, you'll get in pretty much anywhere. That's absolutely a fact. You mentioned growing up supporting... Chelsea, I want to just very quickly talk about what I've noticed in fanhood in Europe. I guess most of my points of reference, they actually come specifically from the UK. But you have this like larger club that people support EPL level. But then there's also a lot of fandom around like local teams. Like I think you you mentioned one, you have one that's pretty close by that you're supporting that your friends are actively pursuing, but then you also kind of have like a premier league team. Is that pretty consistent across? Is, like, is that how do people adopt their local team and they find a premier league team to support or sometimes they're one and the same? Look, I think the, it's a weird one to actually say, where's the majority? Because obviously the money all goes north, right? To the Premier League. But it's much harder to find, other than in the crowd on game day, a sense of community around that, right? Because the fandom of Premier League clubs is much more disparate, partly because it, it's a big fan base. Whereas the local community club, you know, you're going to know everybody's name who comes to the game because they all live locally, right? I think the challenge is... Yeah, define community. So to me, Chelsea's community is global now. It never used to be. It certainly wasn't when I started going in 85. I guarantee when my grandfather started going in the 20s and my father started going in 54, 55, and they won the title in the first year and he thought, wow, this is easy. And 50 years later, he celebrated the second title. I was like, well, that wasn't quite so simple. In those days, it really was. And I think it has been for most generations, the teams were local. Right, Man United was still a local club until '92. In all effect, it's only the modern era where you've seen actually these are global phenomena. 
I'm not sure how many people really go in the UK to the local games, but it is a true part of society. And I'd say a bit like the local pub is for us, right? The local pub is a sense of community where you go, you meet old friends. If it's a true local, you walk in and they've already, as you walk in, they start pouring your drink because they know what you want. And I think you're seeing that at the moment with women's football. If I take Chelsea women's football, it, it gets about 4,000 people. It costs less than five pounds to get in for an adult, I think, and one pound for a child. But it's 4,000 people. It's probably a pretty similar 4,000 each game. That's a real community, the people around there. I think where people really get confounded when you think about European football compared to, say, the US sports is it is a singular continuum. Right. So you have the top four leagues, you've got the Premier League, you've then got three professional leagues below that. And then you've got, I think there's in total nine tiers of professional football. But even in profession, like the, the top four, there's 92 professional football clubs, which is an awful lot. Right. I think that's more than the NBA, NFL, NHL combined. Yeah, approximately. Roughly, or roughly the same yeah, number, right? It would be, yeah. what, 30, 96, mm -hmm. roughly that, 94, 96 in the States. And we've got that in a singular. And of course, below that, you then have the semi-professional and amateur, which are all on a continuum. You can go from starting from zero all the way up to the Premier League. And you've seen that happen in Germany. Salford United, which is owned by some of the guys who used to play for Man United, David Beckham, Gary Neville, Nicky Butt, a few of them. That's come from almost nothing and slowly built itself up to professional. As a Red Sox fan, the Pawtucket Red Sox can't suddenly become a big league team. Whereas, and they're a triple A. This would be your, I don't know, what is it? Your Cactus League team ending up playing so well that it ended up being a major league baseball team. It just doesn't happen. So why that is still a community is one, if you just like football, it's cheap. You can go, it's a nice evening out or day out. But it's a little bit of a dream because you never know this could be the year we go up. And that, that hope, that dream drives people. And at the top level, it drives people to make some crazy bets in terms of buying clubs and things like that. But yeah, it's a uh, sport is very ingrained in local society in, in Europe, not just the UK. Do you think that model should be applied to all sport? As I think about applying that to baseball and basketball, kind of this promotion relegation structure? I've actively said in something like rugby, they should get rid of it because... And my point is not that you should stop there being that hope in the non-professional league, but in some sports, there isn't the basis to pay professional players what they need to earn to live and to dedicate their lives and for the business to actually operate as a business so that it functions properly. But if you're going to do that, you need to, I think, still feed the amateur and semi-pro leagues in a way in which there is hope and there is a way to drive growth and foster community. So to me, I don't think it can be replicated across all sports. I don't think you should want to replicate it on all sports. I think you need to find what works for yours. I think the American model is really interesting, particularly if you're an investor because your downside is limited. I think what you're seeing in American sports, though, is the advent of things like tanking or the amount of baseball games you have. There's some pretty dark months when you're sat there going, my, I know my team can't get to the playoffs, so what the hell? And I think that's a real challenge that the American sports administrators will need to think about. That's not a challenge we have in Europe because you have the promotion relegation. But the separate thing is that, therefore, the clubs that we have can go bankrupt because they've been relegated or they overspent to get promoted and didn't get the promotion and so there is no I don't think there is a perfect model I think you need to find what is the best one for your sport
What I would say is wrong is, I've said this recently publicly, rugby follows the same business model and promotion relegation model that football does, but it's not as big a sport. So why is it following the same business model? Right. Because it's sport? That That's just a bit too generic for me. I'm sure there are people who are putting pins in effigies of me for saying that and that they should get rid of relegation is definitely not a popular thing for me to say, but two of the top flight rugby clubs, and there's only 13, 12 top flight rugby clubs have just gone bust. So you're down to 10. That's not a model that works. Yeah, I think a little bit about the NBA and not to get too fixated on this topic, but the talent right now across the league is incredible. It feels like every single team has a handful of players that are super exciting. And there's talk about expanding the league that feels super within you know, reason without diluting the kind of talent pool. But yeah, I think about what relegation and promotion would look like in that sport and saying it's like they have a really nice balance right now with their structure, but I could see in different sports how they could play out. Makes sense. Can you imagine the Lakers look like they're going to be god awful this year? Could you imagine if they got relegated and LeBron James had to play in the minor league, in the D League next season? Because right. that's technically what would need to happen. That, how's that work? In American culture, how would that work? I don't think it does. Yeah, I think especially with um, the player empowerment, LeBron would probably be like, hey, I'm not going to do that, so I need to be traded. Yeah. And then he's Kevin Duranting out of his contract, and there's a bunch of drama. Totally agreed. And it's funny because, again, I grew up in Brazil, and I remember, I can't remember if it was the club I grew up supporting in Brazil, Flamengo, but it was one of the big clubs. They got relegated, and they sued in court and said, we're too popular a club to be relegated. And the judge agreed, so gave them a promotion. Wow. <laughs> wow. And like, whoa, what the hell's going on here? And like, okay, <laughs> maybe there's a little bit of backhanders and corruption going on. Maybe I'd have thought around that. But you, it was just, and you know, I think you could segue that to what is the European Super League concept. And it's basically the initial version of it was we don't want promotion relegation. I would argue in European sport, there's still a need for it. I'm not sure if we've got it quite right anymore. But there's still probably a need for it culturally. But again, the same time, I've seen the self-called, and I'm obsessed with the fan, but the self-called fan-led review of British football basically said this model we've had for 115 years needs to be protected at all costs. And what other business model that's been running the same way for 115 years is still apt today? Exactly. That doesn't make any sense. And I don't believe that actually protects the fan. I understand why the very loud 1% think it does. I understand the arguments, but I know of no other business model that survived 115 years and everyone, well, yeah, that's brilliant. Let's keep with that. I find that challenging. It's politicians, right? So they wrap it in and call it fan-led review. And fans love promotion relegation unless it's their team being relegated. Totally. But not entirely rational as fans shall we say. <laughs> and nor should we be. No, not at all. I was going to say, we always talk about how just painfully irrational being a fan is. It just doesn't make sense being so emotionally and mentally tied to a bunch of other grown men playing a game. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And we know it doesn't make sense, but we still are fans nonetheless. Speaking of fans, I want to touch on, you put together this awesome, we're calling it fan flywheel. We'll link it in the show notes so people can take a look. But I want to kind of get your perspective on what that is, an overview, how it came about, 
And then I definitely want to double click on some of the individual items that you have in here later. But yeah, will you briefly describe what the fan flywheel is and how it came about? Yeah, I'll touch on where it came about from first. And there's two things that drive me completely nuts. So I go to a lot of events and conferences. I'm sure you guys have too. And everyone stands up on stage and tells you how important the fan is. And then you see their business model they present. And you go, but I don't see the fan in the business model. And so I remember going to one in particular where it was Wimbledon were presenting. And their opening slide had eight points on it. And every one of those points, you guys would instantly go, yeah, that's Wimbledon. That makes sense. Yeah, I think it was heritage is important to us. You know, yeah, it's the oldest and it's everyone knows to wear white. All these things make sense. Um, anyway, they had these eight points. And the eighth point, the last one that came up at the bottom, said the fan comes first. And I literally started laughing because I said, well, they come eighth. <laughs> It's like, it's literally on paper. You've written it. They are eight. And my point on that was, you don't need to change any of the words on the sheet of paper. You just need to change the order because how you interpret your heritage if the fan comes first will be different if the fan comes first. So again, I've seen all these things, you know, I had the pleasure of working at FIFA and I remember a friend of mine at FIFA looking at me after three or four months, he said, I haven't heard anyone here talk about the fan yet. And nodded knowingly at him going, we're at FIFA. Um, and and you know, he and I were working on how do you build a direct-to-consumer business model. So you know, we were trying very hard to think of the fan. And we, you just didn't come up against anyone else thinking the same way. And it, that was a real challenge. As with most things, I didn't reinvent the wheel. I, I'm reading on other stuff. I read the Amazon flywheel. I said, well, that's interesting. If you put the customer first, ultimately, you know, how do you drive things so the customer keeps coming back? I said, okay, well, is that appropriate for sport? And how would I do that? So I literally printed off their very simple fan for the customer flywheel at Amazon, thought about it a bit, and wrote my initial draft on the fan flywheel 18 months ago. About nine, six months ago, I came back to it and went, it's not right. So this is version 2.0 that you've got and that you can share. Because the other piece that always got me is everywhere you go, the other point that everyone says in sport is content is king. And again, that drives me nuts because content is the stimulus, right? We go to watch the content, but it's a stimulus for everything else. So I remember I did six months working in the US Congress and it was the classic water cooler moment. Literally every Monday morning, you'd walk in. And everyone go grab a cup of coffee, glass of water, and talk about last yesterday's NFL games, right? And my point was that the content only lasted for a very brief moment in time, but the conversation, debate, discussion, everything else didn't end, right? It never ended. And then you realize that talk radio was born out of that, right? You know, Mike and Mike and all these other things, and talk sport in the UK. The match ended yesterday, last night, this morning, whenever it was, the golf tournament, whether it's live, PGA, what it, it happened, it was a moment in time. And then for the next couple of days, you talk about what that was, but then you start swiveling to what does that mean for the next event this weekend? Or what is the impact? Or what's the injury? What's the trade? What's the trade? And you're suddenly going, hang on a minute. Content is just the starting point. And if the content is directed to the fan, you can then build out, okay, how do we engage with that fan? How do we then build that into something that is self-fulfilling, self-replicating, and a virtuous cycle? So that that's really what I try to do with the fan flywheel. Start with the fan, then secondarily start with, obviously secondarily can't be starting with, come second to 
okay, content stimulates it. And from there, how do they interact? That's really fascinating. Like I said, we'll link this down in the show notes, but you have this fan kind of mini flywheel and into your point, which I think is spot on, is that the content itself is ephemeral as as far as the actual game goes, right? It's three plus hours plus some halftime and some commercials. But then what really keeps the build up to the next game and next momentum is a conversation and sharing on all these other platforms. The last link in this one is emulate, which I think is a really fascinating kind of closure to that first loop, which is people see these games and like I was speaking from a basketball fan, right? A big thing to do on the playground was like take these crazy fadeaway threes and yell like Kobe. And like we wanted to kind of be like Kobe Bryant, be like Michael Jordan. And then it started drifting into even off the basketball court, right? When you talk about what Jordan and Nike did for shoes and apparel, right? I want to wear the same shoes that Kevin Durant is wearing. Or I want to wear the same clothes that Allen Iverson is wearing. And I think that's a really fascinating thing, which is it goes beyond just talking and being a fan of the sport. It starts to lead into these more tangential aspects of culture, like fashion and apparel. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think the emulation changes now that there's the digital footprint has increased quite a bit? What are you seeing in latest trends that will help people do that emulation? Yeah, it- it just takes a different format. It's not that it, how my father tried to emulate his heroes was probably closer to how I tried to emulate mine to how me and my son do. But my son, yeah, we're all soccer fans, so that that's our go-to. So in the back garden, he wants to be a goalkeeper, and he wears the shirt with the name of the goalkeeper that he loves. He watches his highlights on YouTube and TikTok and then wants to do drills like him, wants to pull off saves, wants me to take penalties against him in the way in which the penalty taker took it, which is asking far more of my talent base than I perhaps <laughs> have to give. Well, it, no, that it just needs to be here in the goal. Like, yeah, I'm trying really hard. It's not quite working. Let's go with it, kiddo. But also, I think it was, I, I found interesting was you, my son's 11, and I've seen him and his mates playing in the park with an actual football running around, but trying to emulate what they'd done in FIFA the game. Oh, interesting. And I thought that was really interesting to watch, right? Was, oh, can you do that flick like this I can do in, on Ronaldo in the game? And you were listening to that conversation going, okay, so they aren't held by boundaries the way that my, my father certainly would and that I'm likely to be, right? That I'm very digitally literate and spend my life investing in, in technology businesses. So I have to be no engineer, but I still draw a line between what happens in a game on a console and what happens in real life. Whereas my son will go, why? That's it's all part of the same universe, right? It's all just football. Huh? I guess it is just football, right? And so then he does games that are called Madfoot, where he's collecting like FIFA cards and he's then trying to recreate the national team that did X using cards. And again, to him, that is a different way for him to emulate. The traditional ways, as you said, buying the shirts, the shoes. Um, yeah, there's some cool stuff I've seen the NBA do where they, they I think they partnered with a company like United Masters or somebody, and they've probably done it with big label brands now where they were putting certain music to certain clips. And of course, then they're promoting the music that goes with that. So people then want that music as well. And okay, so how does the NBA and the stars benefit? And so I think it is much more cultural thing. And yeah, I'll draw an interesting comparison. I grew up, and this isn't a very popular thing to say out loud. I grew up as a big Michael Jackson fan. 
And I always find it funny when I'm watching music videos or something like a music show, Grammy something, and there's a dance routine or something. You go, okay, they're emulating Michael Jackson. And you can see where a whole host of stars from Usher, which again is still showing my age, Justin Timberlake and the like, are still doing what they saw from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on. So I think emulating, we all have that. Most of us probably grew up really want to emulate our parents in some way. So yeah, I think that to me, it's much bigger than just replicating something in the back garden. And I think it goes across digital and non-digital traditional formats. Again, all of that to me leads to where I always end up on the fan firewall is involvement. Because emulating is actually another form of trying to involve yourself in what you've just seen or what you've just heard and what you've just done. And I think involvement, that's where you get the community, right? That's actually what I found interesting when I first started reading about things like blockchain was interesting that so this is a community that interacts with one another and the people feel like they're involved in part of the process around it not being told what the process will be and that that was a very interesting take on community for me and then you, i draw that back to sport where are fans upset with sport now is where they feel like they're being dictated to and left on the outside and not a part of it absolutely you touched a little bit on this so that you, when you bumped into Kraushaus and started learning a little bit about that, and you mentioned the blockchain and the involvement, where do you see the overlap between the flywheel and I think what we're trying to do with Kraushaus? I go back to what was sport originally. It was community, right? So the local, if I think of British football, it was the local steel mill or coal mill owner creating a club where people could have leisure time and that built a community that brought him a bit few more years of them being loyal workers in his mill or the mine or whatever it was but it was always a center of community and so i i'm intrigued by the correlation between that original community that made sport so successful and what i think is happened initially in blockchain and crypto communities where you often start with the community and then the community tries to figure out what it wants to do. I'm a CrossFitter nowadays as a middle-aged man trying desperately hard to stay fit. And the sport was born out of the community, a bit like most professional sports, but it's still young enough that it remembers that it has a community. So how do you then take that next leap from, okay, crypto enables and starts often with the community what does it then do with it? And sport is one of the biggest communities in the world, if not the biggest behind perhaps religion. Those should be intersecting in a far greater way. So I come back to, I always also feel like I own my club, even though I don't own it. And again, I go back to blockchain is community, but it's also about ownership. So again, fans always feel like they own it, even when they don't physically own it. But there are ways, I think, that you can start bringing ownership and community back into sport. And it might be that we achieve that via using a modern technology, which is interesting because most people say that technology is what's driving us apart. Which, I mean, on that comment, I suspect that technology has cycles, of course, right? So it's always an interesting piece of technology is probably driving us apart in certain dimensions and then bringing us back together in a cyclical pattern that really like even newspapers printing press right it's like the first advent of the printing press probably felt like it was driving people apart because 
spreading new ideas that were challenging the old ideas, right? But then books bring people together and there's new niches. And anyways, I'll, I'll spare my rantings on it. But yeah, that's a fascinating parallel. And one of the things that I found interesting when, when I was introduced to Krauss was I also understand the traditionalist aversion to the concept of a Krauss or some, something like it. I get it. I do. I sadly haven't had a grandfather in a very long time, but he'd just be like staring at me blankly going, what the hell are you talking about? But for me, when I started doing the reading, it was going, okay, this isn't what most people would paint it as in that actually when you get into the documentation, you go, okay, this is actually really well thought through. <laughs> yes, thank you. Which, no, but that's surprising. And that's actually, again, why I was like, oh, I, I need to find out who these people are and how do I get to know them? Because how does that test me? Like, how does that change my perception? How do I rethink ownership? I tried to buy a Premier League football club this summer. I've helped others buy a sports team. Looking at it again and going, okay, if you were to do it via a community that is based using blockchain technology as its underpinning, what actually does it own? What is its involvement? What does involvement mean? So if I go back to that, this summer, I tried to buy Chelsea Football Club. It's my team. My father has been a chairman of a Premier League football club, Liverpool, before. And when Roman Abramovich was leaving, I called up my father and said, we've got to have a go. And my entire pitch was it should be fan-owned, fan-led ownership of the club. And you know, you're second generation, I'm third generation, my son's fourth generation. We are through and through fans, so how do we do this? And a lot of the work I did was meeting all the local communities, the clubs, the, the groups that, the supporters groups. And we started with, and we stuck with, and most rival bidders, apart from, interestingly, the one that won, then took on the mantle of what we said from day one, which was, we want the fans to have the option to own up to 10% of the football club. 9.99% because above 10%, you have to pass certain tests for the Premier League rules. So we said 9.99%, which would have been about 250 million that you need to raise from fans. And so the, I started looking around, well, how do you do that? And is that a Krauss house? Is that using blockchain technology? Right. Is that a traditional share certificate? I, I didn't have the answer. And actually, given the time frame that we had, from finding out it was available to closing a sale was less than eight, roughly eight weeks in total. Wow. There wasn't the time to define exactly what it was, but we were steadfast in that the fans should have that option. They may decide they don't want it, but they should have the option. And of course, that led to me having to do more digging on, okay, so what is a Kraus and how does it work? And could that be the vehicle that we work with that ultimately could pull that off for us? Is it somebody else? I don't know. Unfortunately, I didn't win the bid, so I didn't get to fulfill <laughs> that, that dream. I think where we got to very clearly was, and I had this, and this went back to my fan flywheel because I was meeting all the supporters groups. And it was really interesting because there's only there were only two things all the supporters groups agreed on. One was they want their team to win titles. Okay, we're all fans. We all want that. The other one was none of them liked the beer that had pouring rights in the stadium, so could we change the beer? <laughs> Those are the only two things that they were all agreed on. 90% of them agreed they didn't want the surcharge on ticket prices of £2.50 administration fee, but you could still find a few people who didn't care. Interesting. So it was beer and winning. Some people told us that owning the team was the single greatest thing we could do to allowing fans to own up to 10% was the single greatest thing we could do to restore trust. And others thought we were here to try and rob them blind, literally both ends of right. the spectrum. But they all agreed with the basic premise. And they often said it to me rather than me to them, which was 
if we could just feel like we're more part of the club and that we matter, we'll probably end up spending more money because we want to spend the money. Right. But we don't like you. <laughs> so we'll spend it elsewhere. We'll still come to the games. We're never giving that up. And we'll, there's a lot of price elasticity because they'll never give it up. But we don't really like you. So we get our news from somewhere else. We go to different social outsources and the social media bandwidth of a Chelsea football club is insane. But it's even bigger when you actually think of how many people are interacting with Chelsea but aren't going to Chelsea. Right. And that to me was the point. Was they, they were saying, look, if you actually invited us in, like we'd love to be, but tr- go on an NBA team after this. Go on a Premier League team's website and try to find where you can engage with other fans of your own team on their site. And I think in a meaningful, high quality way too, it feels like a lot of the stuff. Yeah. I'd say in any way. In any any way. And time yourself because I think it'll take longer than you think and it'll probably be a place where you can leave a customer complaint or feedback and it's not an engagement directly with somebody else. That's fascinating. Certainly not another fan. What I love about the fan first flywheel is I think that's a relatively new-ish philosophy of even putting the customer first. And so then I think about, to your point, this thesis, applying that to the fam. And then you have this new technology layer that has become not at scale, but it's enough at scale that there's use cases like Krausehouse starting to emerge. And to me, it does feel like there is this opening in this new era that has an opportunity to merge those two. And I just, I'm really obsessed with this fan flywheel and I'm obsessed with customer flywheels in normal businesses, but applying this to fans, I'm embarrassed, honestly, ashamed a bit that that I it didn't that insight didn't cross my mind to say what you did and said, hey, I'm going to sit down and just remodel this from the fans first. It's just, it's absolutely genius, and I love it. And I think the intersection with Krausehouse could be an entirely new structure. And I think what's interesting is I think some of the and tell me if I'm grasping at straws here. I think some of the unrest we have in the world right now is because people feel disenfranchised, right? Absolutely. They're scared of the future. They're scared of technology. They're scared where their jobs. They're scared of high inflation, and they feel disenfranchised, like their voice isn't being heard, despite the fact that there are more and more ways to have a voice. You know, yeah. Because then you realize that Twitter really isn't a voice. So. Again, I go back to what is the underlying technology that could change that? I think blockchain has a really good chance of doing that because of where it's come from. It won't be perfect. Then within that, okay, where do you find real community and how does that work? And what's its end game? Not currency trading, but what's its end game? And again, I then obviously come back to community where people feel self-worth, often in sports, even as a fan, that's their escape. So if you can combine those two and do it effectively, the next trick, and I think, again, this goes through when people take the time, I think, to read your philosophy at Krauss, that what you're not coming to the party and saying is, I, Commodore, I, Flex, and I, the community, will choose the starting five on every night and who gets rested and when and how many minutes and we're going to... Because that freaks ownership out. It actually freaks the majority of fans out. When you see some examples of like, oh, well, we're going we're gonna to decide everything. It's, well, that's, who knows? That might be the journey we end up following, but I think that's a very long journey. More importantly is how do we get fans back in the clubhouse involved in meaningful ways where that sense of ownership 
is real and that the literal ownership can be real. And I think that's important. I think that's important. I think that's important for sport going forward because, again, I go back to the European Super League. That is a lot of disenfranchised fans going, you don't care about us fans. You'll just do whatever it takes for you. And that's why I think it was so vitriolic, the pushback. I mean, it was a classic learning. It'll be a Harvard Business School document on how not to launch a new product. So to me, I think there are people crying out for what you're trying to deliver and what I think you will deliver. And I think for the right owners of sports teams, preferably in the NBA, of course, given your goals, and then I hope, hopefully in football, my football, there will be ownership groups that sit there and say, not only do I want this, but I need this. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so funny. I think the comparison that I always draw is when we finally get in that room or on the phone is I think a lot of people, especially ownership, when they first read our headline or kind of project of what we might be, they immediately think of like Wall Street bets, right? Let's come in, let's fire the coach, let's trade players, let's draft. And we're actually, we actually come and say the opposite. I think what got us excited about this original idea is very naive fans and not having been through a bid process or have connections to ownership group, our minds immediately went to general management. We're like, oh, that would be so cool to do. And then after a couple of conversations, when you find out general management actually relies on a lot of personal relationships and building that book over time, that may be one of the least interesting opportunities to run decentralized. So we're like, okay, like what can we do? And then once we started to lay out the plan in front of ownership group, they're like, wow, I didn't, I never thought of it like this. This is really interesting. So to your point, it's not about coming in and messing with everything. I think what we've adopted our philosophy at Krause House is that just like any other ownership group, our goal is to win. And so if that means helping out with back office operations or front end things first, and then let us prove our value and then maybe expand some of the scope of our work. But that's where we're going to start. We're not going to, we're not going to work top down. We're going to start grassroots and figure out where we can really add value. And that's the point. Yeah. And as you said in there, every fan wants to win. That's, you know, watching the Jets and Giants fans this season being so excited after all these years of torture and just wants to win and to have the hope of winning. Which again, I think I've always loved the draft in American sports because that hope can come back. When I lived in the States, it was the Cincinnati Bungles. And now they've been to the Super Bowl with Joe Burrow as their quarterback. You're like, oh my God, that's as far away from what they were when I was around. And it was the same about the LA Chargers. I'm like, wow, okay, now the Chargers are seen as the highlight reel with Herbert and maybe not the Knicks, but that, that could be an interminable solution. But those New York fans are just desperate for a win. And the question I would say that those fans are asking is, how do I get involved to help us win? Exactly. What can I do other than just show up and shout at the referee every game, the umpire every game? Yeah, 100%. You know, what's been really fascinating for me to kind of see in behind is that when we first started, I think our minds immediately went to lean more kind of the extrinsic benefits of ownership, right? Like, yeah, it'd be cool to have season tickets and have this asset that's appreciated that I'm a diehard supporter of this team. But in hindsight, what's been crazy to really see is the intrinsic side, right? You have data scientists that said, I will work nights and weekends outside of my full-time job to provide regression analysis and reporting to a team just in case that report has an effect to win one more game which might 
allow us to get to the playoffs, which might allow us to win a playoff series. Like that drive has been insane to see. And when you couple that with with any sort of not only just compensation, but potential ownership as a reward for doing that, Flywheel is just incredible to see. Well, take that one step further, right? So take Krauss and take open source engineering properly. Yeah. Right. And say, given how many people are passionate about it and how many people have spare time, even time that isn't really spare, as you said, guys, you'll stay up at night to f- figure out that regression analysis. If you did it properly, the resource that your team could actually tap into is almost never ending. Right. Right. But they're a completely closed shop, completely closed shop. Now, I'm not saying that the general manager, you know, you know, again, I, I was always a huge fan of Theo Epstein as a Red Sox fan. I don't want mm-hmm. him to see everybody's views. That's too much information, right? That's too much data. But there has to be a way that says, okay, how do we help channel that? Because everyone wants to try. Everyone would like to, in their own way, help. So what's the right mechanism for doing that? And Again, I'm yet to find a better mechanic than the open source technologies of the world and blockchain as the underpinning. Again, that reverts me back to, okay, what is someone like you at Krauss trying to achieve? Okay, where does that best play out? And I would say iteration one will definitely be different to iteration two or three because you're going to learn and you're going to learn because the community will talk and we'll interact with one another, you'll learn what worked on that ownership stake that you want to change for the next one. And then the trick will be that actually the ownership stake in the first one was wrong for Chelsea, but it might have been right for Man United because they're different fan sets. And whilst we're all driven the same way, we're all different. A Chelsea fan identifies differently to a Man United fan, bizarrely. So I I think it's a really fascinating journey. I do think it is one where the old school will need to be taken on the journey. And... If my final point would be this, I remember when the iPad came out and I remember it vividly because Bill Gates had been talking about tablets for so long and he tried to launch them multiple, multiple times and it just never took, it never took. And then the iPad comes out and you just moved your finger across the screen and it didn't matter if you were two or 82, everyone (laughs) could do it instantly. Right. The operating system was so easy, so intuitive, it just made sense. Of course you do this. Yeah. Right? To the point that everybody's operating system basically works off the same principles now. Right? The UX has to be swipe left, swipe right. Tap on it and you've got it. Yo, I don't know anyone who buys a laptop nowadays where the screen isn't also able to use your finger to scroll. Right. By using a mouse, just flick with your finger. So I just find that will be, I don't think we've got nailed it yet. We need to go through it. But what is the pitch? What is the mechanism that the ownership sits there and just goes, oh my God, that's just so obvious. Like, why would you ever say no to that? That's just, and of course, the great thing with this is it's a snowball coming down a mountain. And you've already seen it once in the NBA, right? With Dial Capital and Arctos. Yeah. External capital coming in. And then that just accelerated. Every team's had it now, pretty much. Right? Every week you see another stake in another as a minority. So you see they go, okay. So they're now okay with institutional capital because it became so obvious and so easy. Yeah. So how do we do that now with a Krauss? I do believe you'll probably be the first. And once you've done it and you refined it, Others will follow and go, oh, that, that's how you pull it off. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's funny. It's slow and steady and then all at once, right? I think the time that private equity expressed interest in, in buying portions of an NBA team to the time they were actually allowed took eight years. Right. And Every then, overnight success took seven years to build it, right? <laughs> exactly. Or, exactly. And then so all of a sudden, everyone wants in and you've seen the valuations of the franchises climb. You've seen these owners get access to more liquidity. It just makes sense, but it just took so long to get people on board. I'm hoping though, obviously I'm sitting here with rose colored glasses on, but I'm hoping our value proposition to these franchise being more than just financial will hopefully accelerate that process a little bit. And I think we can do it. And I appreciate you saying that we're the first, but Michael, I want to thank you so much. This is great. Like Commodore mentioned, I think when I saw the fan flywheel as product people, we've been looking at flywheels for over a decade and it just makes so much sense to apply to the fan because like you said, they're the ultimate customer. We're irrationally passionate and it makes so much sense. And so I appreciate you coming on and sharing more details. Like I said, we'll link it in the show notes so everyone can, can see the beauty of the flywheel. But I want to thank you again for coming on. Like this was great and very insightful. So I appreciate your time. Delighted to be invited. Thank you so much for the time. Please share. If people then want to find me, send them to my Twitter or LinkedIn account if they want to learn more about the fan flywheel. I'm always happy to talk about it. And I don't consider it IP because it's just people need to put the fan first. Open um, source. Open absolutely. source. Absolutely. I love it. Oh, yeah. And if we didn't take any other thing away today, it's our first thing that we're going to look at when we land on the cap table is the beers that they have on tap. I think that's 100%. a key, that's a key insight. That's a key insight that I hadn't previously realized. So put that, as I say, beer first, fan second. We'll say we've already <laughs> updated the model. <laughs> uh, cool. No, thank you. Thank you again so much. I appreciate your time. And uh, I'm sure we'll be connecting sometime shortly. Thank you, Flex. And thank you, Commodore, for having me. And yeah, I look forward to further conversations down the line. Good luck. Absolutely.